Welcome to the new season. We're so excited for this season's focus on the American South and all of the new Americans that live within it. For those of you who don't know, the podcast was started at the University of South Carolina, South Carolina's flagship university. Since we started at a university and our aim with the podcast is to educate our listeners as well as ourselves, we wanted our first episode to touch on the topics of new American education within the state of South Carolina and how refugees, migrants, and other new Americans within our state face several challenges throughout their educational journey. My name is Isha Hegde, and I'm your host for today's episode, and I'm joined today by Dr. McCorkle, a professor of education at the College of Charleston and a friend of the podcast that members met at the Southeastern Immigration Studies Association Conference. We're so excited for you all to listen to this episode and for the rest of our amazing season. Welcome to the Seeking Refuge podcast. It would be awesome if you could introduce yourself for some of our listeners. Well, thank you all for having me. My name is Will McCorkle. I'm an assistant professor of education at College of Charleston. I've been there. This is my fifth year at College of Charleston. I was formerly a middle grades and high school uh, social studies teacher both in, I lived in Costa Rica for a while and taught, and then I was living in Greenville, South Carolina. And I did my graduate work at Clemson. And a lot of that work did focus on rights for immigrant students. A lot of that push towards studying that was because of the students I was working with at Greenville High School. And just seeing a lot of the barriers that they faced in the state and the lack of rights that they often had, especially those who were DACA or undocumented. And so I wanted to explore what teachers' awareness and attitudes were to these struggles. And through that, I got involved in a lot of work with immigrant students in South Carolina. And then the the last couple years, um, I've been working a lot at the southern border and working directly with asylum seekers. And so still in the area of immigration, but it has my focus has shifted a little bit recently. Yeah, we're going back to just teaching in Greenville and working with a lot of undocumented and DACA recipient students there. Were you initially surprised that, I don't want to say that these students existed in the state of South Carolina, but I guess, yeah, kind of that they were within the South Carolina school system because I feel like personally I'm from Columbia and living here those students aren't publicized and their concerns aren't brought to the foray here in our school system so was it an initial surprise working with them or were you more so aware that undocumented students were within the Greenville school systems if that makes any sense it's a really good question before I moved to Costa Rica I did teach one year of high school in Greenville and I had you know, a few immigrant students, but Mm -hmm. it definitely wasn't a large amount of students. And so I do think even I came back to the U.S. four years later, and the amount of immigrant students, especially where I was working at, had grown pretty dramatically. A lot of people don't realize South Carolina from like 2000 to about 2018 had the largest increase and their immigrant or multilingual learner population in the country. Mm -hmm. It went up 700% 
my gosh. Yeah, or over 700%. Now, it's, it started really low. And so that's part of the reason for that dramatic increase. But it was the fastest growing in the nation. And because of that, I think there was a lot of this backlash in the state. You know, we became the first state that banned undocumented students from studying at state colleges and universities. We're still one of three states that does that. So that's why at USC, at College of Charleston, there's no undocumented students allowed to study. And even those that had DACA status, which doesn't apply to most younger students today, but going back, you know, five, 10 years, they're not allowed to get in-state tuition, state licensure. And the thing that really shocks people is that even um, children, U.S. citizens whose parents are undocumented have been denied in-state tuition oh in South Carolina. Even Not if like, they were born within, like, forget the country confines, like state confines, they're, you know, denied in-state tuition. Yeah, a lot of times it was students who were, let's say, born in North Carolina and then came to South Carolina sometime during school. And they, the state would basically just say, no, your parents are undocumented. You can't give a social security number, so we're going to count you as out of state. Now, some students did sue the state of South Carolina about that, and they uh, went to the commission, the commission of higher education in South Carolina said, you should consider these students for in-state tuition. So what I've found is in a lot of cases, if the state appeals the case, the university will give them in-state tuition. But if they don't know that process or they don't know those intricacies, it's almost just like you're going to be charged out of state tuition. And so they just give up and don't try to go to the in-state school. So I've uh, I've written quite a bit about that, and I can send you some of the links to that about uh, this backlash in South Carolina, mm-hmm. this growing immigrant population. Because traditionally, you know, when you think of diversity or you think of race or ethnicity in South Carolina, it was very much a black and white discussion. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's still framed in that way because that's historically was the realities. Historically, there weren't many immigrants coming to the South. Even going back to the 1800s, they were very resistant to immigrants coming in. And so now that new dynamic has come into play. And what I argue in some of my work is that that white supremacy and that racism that's obviously always been in South Carolina has been more easily translated to the new immigrant populations, especially if you can um, frame it in terms of legality instead of race. So people can get away with saying really horrific things, but they're like, oh, it's not about race. It's not because they're Latino. It's because yeah, they yeah. don't have the status that we want. Mm-hmm. Wow. No, I... It's so surprising to me, the, I guess, point that you brought up of a student being born within, you know, like even North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia confines, and then being denied tuition or, you know, scholarships in state just because of their parents being um, undocumented right now. Is that, do you think there are any plans within the state of South Carolina to have a shift in that policy? Do you see a lot of teachers, professors that you work with realizing like, 
hey, this may not be the best policy because a large group of immigrant, migrant, and refugee children aren't able to afford going to school and state. Yeah, you know, when it comes to U.S. citizens with, with undocumented parents, it's not even really a official law or policy. I think it was, or official law, it was kind of like this policy that was unclear in higher ed. And so it's not like a defined line. Um, it's more of getting through the bureaucracy of it. When it comes to issues like dreamers not getting in state tuition, there is a bill right now um, in the South Carolina legislature that is trying to give these students in-state tuition and also access to state licensure. And it's ironically being pushed by this Republican congressman up in Easley, you know, in Pickens County, um, named Neil Collins. And he always jokes that he's, you know, in the most conservative state, in the most conservative county in the U.S., but he just heard a lot of these stories of dreamers and their experiences. And he was like, this isn't right. We need, this isn't good for our state. It doesn't make sense. And so the last couple of years he's been pushing for this. Um, it's obviously caused some backlash. Like he's almost lost his primaries a couple of times because that position is yeah. not always as popular and, and easily not to, not to, uh, you know, stigmatize easily as a whole, but he is pushing it forward. It's always what I've, you know, gotten from him is that there is a lot of support for it if you actually asked legislators individually, but there's this Trumpism and there's this uh, very anti-immigrant movement that doesn't allow legislators to even vote the way that they maybe feel like they should because they're afraid of this backlash that would occur. And we're Trumpism. That's what I'm kind of putting in as this idea that has really made a lot of legislators afraid to actually do what maybe in their hearts they feel is right. I have definitely personally noted that myself. I was able to like on my college campus talk to like my school's like young Republican group and I was talking to them about refugee and migrant issues and it's very interesting how there is a moral support for it but politically it's very hard for them to I won't say uh, support a candidate but stand behind a candidate most times just because of this I feel like ultra right-wing movement that's been going on in our nation it saddens me because I feel like refugee, migrant, and immigrant issues have kind of been lumped in to be this negative point for this ultra right-wing movement when morally a lot of voters seem to agree with the stances that, you know, refugee, migrant, and immigrant children should have the same rights as them at the end of the day, education-wise. Right. Yeah, and I think it's, uh, you know, so on one hand, as you were saying, we were talking about like there's this, this very anti-immigrant movement, especially symbolized with Trump. One paper I'm, I haven't actually gotten out yet, but I'm trying to work on is looking at some of the background of this movement, even pre-Trump, that it wasn't quite as like openly vicious and xenophobic. It wasn't like people chanting build a wall or yeah. whatever else, but it was in some ways just as problematic. So looking at, you know, Mark Sanford, who was the governor who signed the, they called it the Illegal Immigration Reform Act into law, and then also Nikki Haley 
who put in a new version of this bill that would have actually made it a crime for immigrants not to have their papers with them at all times. And you know, Nikki Haley was, you know, and she's from the, the Columbia area and, you know, her parents are immigrants from India. And unfortunately, if you go back to some of her campaign dialogue, it was really, in my in perspective, really despicable how she would be like, well, my parents are immigrants, but they don't like these illegals. And almost like using her immigrant background as a way to like push this very anti-immigrant narrative in the state. And some of what she did sign into law did get struck down by the Supreme Court that, you know, if you're an immigrant, you don't have to have your papers with you at all times. Yeah. You know, her and Mark Sanford compared to Trump look very moderate on immigration. But when you actually get down to a lot of their core policies, they might be quite similar. They're just not as openly xenophobic about it as some of the other politicians you see today. And just kind of pivoting away from the political end of things, because I want to, although it's a great conversation, I do want to talk about your work as well. How is your work that you did initially teaching ESL in Costa Rica, uh, working for that high school in Greenville, transferred over to your work now that you do with the College of Charleston? Yeah, so I was, I did teach ESL a little bit in Costa Rica, I mainly taught social studies. And when I was in the States, I was teaching social studies. When I was, especially when I was teaching in Greenville, though, I was working with a lot of students that were in the ESL program, a lot of new immigrant students. And building that relationship with them, especially coming back from Costa Rica and speaking Spanish, they would put all the new, newly arrived immigrant students in my classes. And so hearing stories um, both for students that, let's say, were dreamers and had been here for 10 years. You know, maybe they came here when they were five or six years old. And also students that had just come from, usually from Guatemala and Honduras, as asylum seekers. And they would come into the classroom with often no English at all. Oftentimes, you know, broken Spanish because that was their second language and so maybe they spoke some Spanish, um, oftentimes without much academic background. Mm-hmm. So it was even a different situation with those students. And so when I saw that, I really wanted to explore how do teachers think about this? Are they aware of these issues? I still remember one time I was teaching a class and um, another teacher came knocking on my door and he's like, I have a student that's in tears because she just did this two-year college program through the school. She just finished it. And now the state of South Carolina is saying because she has DACA status, she can't get licensed. And so she feels like she just wasted you know, two years of her life doing this and she can't actually practice in the state of South Carolina. And when I would talk to administrators, when I would talk to teachers, I just found that a lot of people didn't know about these policies. Mm-hmm. They probably didn't think South Carolina was the most open and affirming state in the country, yeah. but they didn't realize the extent of what had occurred. And oftentimes there'd be this disconnect. And I, I see this with teachers and even some students I teach now where 
they might have this political ideology that's like very restrictive. They're like, oh, I, but I love this immigrant student in my class. You know, don't don't mess with him or her. But there's still these broader policies that are making life difficult for their students. Yeah, no, that just that story of that young girl is so heartbreaking. Do you know what she's doing now? If she was ever able to get her license. That student, I did not actually know personally, but I've had other students that were in that situation. I had one student that was in the same boat and she never was able to get her license. Now, in her case, fortunately, she ended up opening her own business and uh, she has her own restaurant in Greenville okay. off uh, Pleasantburg. I'll have to uh, find the name. But so in her case, you know, things worked out, but it, I'm sure in a lot of cases, it just means you're not able to pursue certain careers and the same thing with teaching, like you can't go into education. And so we talk about we need more bilingual teachers and nurses, and then we restrict young people from actually pursuing these careers. Even if you were looking at it from a self-interest or economic perspective, there's no reason for South Carolina to do this. It's mm-hmm. just antagonism and it's really just you know political gains for, I guess, certain constituents. One thing that you said really stood out to me where a lot of teachers are like, well, my, uh, you know, migrant, immigrant, refugee student, you know, I don't want these policies to impact them per se, because they know them on an individual level. But on a broader scale, they're a little less, less inclined to call out the broader scale policies that impact a lot more students that they don't individually interact with. So going off of that, what are some stigmas that you think come along with teaching undocumented um, migrant and refugee students in the state of South Carolina? Because from what you were saying, once you get to know these students on an individual basis, it becomes a lot easier to sympathize with the difficulties that they're going through. But what do you think is holding back a lot of people, teachers especially, from kind of sympathizing with the broader student population, if that makes any sense. Are there specific stigmas that come along with teaching these students? Yeah, and I think uh, that's a really good question. I think one thing is that sometimes teachers don't even realize the situation their students are in. And so they might not realize their student is undocumented or maybe more likely their parents are undocumented. And so if they're getting a steady you know, inflow of Fox News and Breitbart or whatever else, they have this image of an undocumented immigrant or the asylum seeker coming across the border as this very scary drug dealer. And they have this these big stereotypes. What I've found sometimes is people don't translate that um, student that they have in their classroom. They put them like in a different category. They don't even realize when you're talking about the undocumented immigrants as a whole, you're talking about this student, you're not just talking about this caricature that Fox News has created about undocumented immigrants. I think one of the ways to combat some of that is to actually have people hear those stories. And I think that's what y'all do really well with your podcast, because you can lecture about things, you can put up political memes, and it doesn't really go anywhere. But if you actually hear the stories of people, it's a lot harder to just dismiss them. Now, the most like anti-immigrant voices will do that. Yeah. But 
I, one thing I found really effective when I was in grad school, I would, uh, and I've done this at College of Charleston as well, is to bring in someone who is um, undocumented or has DACA status and have them explain the situation to the students. Mm-hmm. And what I found is a lot of times it's just a complete lack of understanding. It's not necessarily an antagonism. I, I remember one student I had, I brought her to class and she was telling her story and there was a student in the back who raised his hand and he was being, he wasn't being sarcastic. Like he was being very legitimate. He's like, why, why can't you just go down to the courthouse and get your papers? Right. It was yeah. <laughs> this thought of, oh, it's pretty easy to do. And so there's less sympathy if, if it's just that people don't want to walk down to the courthouse and pay taxes and put in their papers, then I understand why there'd be more, less sympathy. But unfortunately, that's sometimes how it's framed. I remember when we, we would have these vigils and rallies for Dreamers in Greenville and the local news media would cover it. And, you know, if, if you would look at the, the comments below those videos, they're pretty horrific. But one thing that people kept saying is, why don't you just become legal? When the whole point of the event was we want legal status. There's, you know, real ignorance, but there's also a level of like willful ignorance when people don't want to know. And it's just easier to say these people don't want to pay taxes. They don't want to become legal instead of actually hearing the stories and understanding the realities of the system. So my family and I, we just got our American citizenship around, I would say, last last semester. And oh, even, yeah, yeah, thank you. And um, even then, my family and I immigrated here when I was like three years old. And so for a lot of my friends, it was very, very hard to conceptualize that, oh, like my parents and I have been living, working, going to school here for the longest time. Why can I not vote in a local election? we've been staying here for so long. Is it so hard to get this, Amer- you know, this seal of American citizenship? But a lot of times it's jumping through so, so many hoops and going through this large bureaucratic procedure that I can imagine for someone who's just moved here for the first time is not only incredibly intimidating, but requires so many other kind of like a village around you to help, which for a lot of forget, you know, the new students who are just being introduced to the school system have really no friends here, I would say, or a community, like a community of children for their parents who are probably working right now cannot form that sense of community themselves. I can, I would say it's an incredibly isolating procedure that a lot of people don't understand is so, so hard to go through. I think that idea that even if people that come in that have a legal visa like or have a green card right that process is so long mm-hmm. um, I think like my wife in that situation it wasn't too difficult but it's still like this process um to get the in the visa or the citizenship but a lot of people there's no there's no wine at all right there's no way they can actually become get legal status unless the system changes yeah and sometimes what happens and I, I've seen this, unfortunately, is that someone has like one example of a friend of an immigrant friend that got legal status fairly easily. So it's a, a wealthy 
German family that's working yeah. at BMW and they got their papers or it's someone who married someone else. There was one time I was uh, having a Zoom conversation with someone at Panera Bread about our work at the border. And this guy in the back was listening. And so I went to the restaurant, came back and he was like, so you're helping people cross illegally. Like he wanted to like have this like argument in the middle of Panera. And he said that, you know, his wife was an immigrant from Australia and she did it the right way. And it's almost this idea of, yeah, your, <laughs> your wife who lives in a wealthy nation and is married to a U.S. citizen is a completely different situation than someone, you know, seeking asylum from Haiti or Guatemala. Yeah. I think there can be a danger sometimes in people having just friends that fulfill or that have gone through that process relatively easily because then it almost creates this narrative of, oh, it's not that hard to do because maybe the the friend that you had was in a situation that was completely different, especially if it's through marriage or family. Yeah. Where if it's someone you know seeking asylum, it's mm-hmm. such a different um, process. But the point that you made that even in those cases where it's somewhat easier, it's still this like really drawn out process yeah. to get a visa and then keep the visa and get a green card and everything else. Kind of going back to a point that you were making earlier that I was just thinking on in my head as we were speaking. For a lot of these students who do not speak English when they come or don't speak English super well when they come into the United States, maybe they don't even speak Spanish that well. How do they end up, I don't want to say the word catching up to their classmates, but how do they end up doing in the classroom in these situations? And how do teachers have to adapt around them or what adaptations do they have to make as students to be comparable to their peers many times? Yeah, it is definitely a a more difficult journey. I think it depends, you know, when students come to the States, if they come in elementary school, it's still uh, difficult, but it's a little bit easier to get the language and to like, stay up academically oftentimes there's still going to be needed supports even there when i worked with a lot of students from high school level if they had just come into the u.s it was almost impossible to get an actual degree um, high school degree a lot of times students would drop out especially the students who like they're coming from an area of real poverty you know they only went through third or fourth grade and now they're ninth or 10th grade and so they have this massive language barrier and they're academically they haven't had the same experience it is very difficult now there's if it's just the language barrier let's say that someone was from mexico but they were from a wealthier area and they had a strong education background and then they came to the states a lot of times in those situations, it's a lot easier to adapt. But if it's not having that academic background, not even being literate in their first language, it's a real uphill battle in those situations. And so I do think getting those services from multilingual learners is deeply important. And in some cases, there's also the reality if the student comes when they're 16 years old and they're in that situation, they're not going to get 
an actual high school diploma, but hopefully they get some of those language skills and there can be enough of that tutoring that maybe they could go on eventually and um, get a GED and Mm -hmm. go into other areas. So with that in mind, do you believe that advocacy for migrant and refugees, refugee issues and immigrant issues even within the state of South Carolina or within the South really in regards to education is more difficult than per se a Northern state or any other geographic region within America? Yeah, I think there is less of a history there. And so you have less of a knowledge of how to actually reach the students. Um, You have less teachers that speak Spanish or, you know, increasingly in some areas, Portuguese, there's more Brazilian immigrants. I always encourage my students, you know, when they're going to school to, to learn some Spanish because if they're staying in South Carolina, that's likely the immigrant group they're going to be working with. 80, 90% of their students. Um, there's some obvious exceptions across the state. So I think those are greater difficulties for, and this is a little on a different topic, but for asylum seekers, which is a lot of the new immigrants that are coming in are not actually undocumented. Um, so it's a little different than it was maybe 15, 20 years ago where people would just come through the border and be undetected and then come to the U.S. That still does happen, but more and more it's people that are somewhat in the system. So they have legal permission to be here right now as asylum seekers, but they have to have their court case. So much of the determination if you're going to get asylum or not depends on what state you live in. And so in South Carolina, you have to go to the court in Charlotte, less than 10% of people are able to get asylum in the immigration court there in Charlotte compared to let's say New York or Philadelphia, where maybe it's 60% of people. And so it's a lot more about the political leanings of the judges. And so that's one thing where when I'm working at the border, and someone has, let's say, a family member in Carolina and one in New York, South Carolina might be a cheaper place. Uh, there's definitely advantages to maybe go there over New York. But when you have this court case and you're thinking about your long-term asylum, you yeah. don't really do that in South Carolina because the chances of getting it are so much yeah. lower. And then, then you really get family disruption, right? When, let's say, you have a family in South Carolina their asylum asylum claim is denied, they either get deported or then they really are undocumented and they have to be completely underground and they could get you know, mm-hmm. caught by ice and that disrupts education as well. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about your experiences within the state of South Carolina, but I know right before this, you mentioned that you do work along the border. Would you like to just share with our viewers what you do there and what experiences you've gained from working along the border? And I guess a lot of the insight that you've gained as well. Yeah. So I uh, never actually been to the Mexican-American border. And this was back in like, you know, 2019, right when the height of Trump's border policies that remain in Mexico and so I just put out something on social media and I was like, does anyone have a contact at the border? 
And there was a minister in Greenville who I knew who had a friend that was at the border that was working with asylum seekers. And so I had a conference in Austin and I went down there to McAllen, Texas, which is right across from Reynosa, Mexico. And we went together to this camp that had been formed during the Trump administration when they were blocking people from entering the country and just seeing the situation that was occurring. And from this, uh, my friend who lives down there, who's Mexican-American, you know, she immigrated from Mexico. We started this ministry called Practice Mercy. And so we work directly with these asylum seekers. And there's uh, different elements of this. Um, it, it is a Christian ministry. So we do work um, with praying with people, meeting those spiritual needs. We, if possible, try to find legal services for individuals that are especially like in very precarious situations. So for example, pregnant women or someone that might be able to get a chance to enter and then also providing some of those needs for different items that individuals need. And um, I was telling you beforehand, we've done this like eyeglass clinic to get people eyeglasses. And it's a part of it is also bringing groups down. So we've brought down you know, churches, but also increasingly people from universities, school districts mm-hmm. to see what is occurring and hopefully getting them to support these asylum seekers. How do you think their perception has changed? Like I can just imagine, you know, a student who's maybe spent their entire life within the Southeast, within South Carolina, or, you know, within the United States, kind of like go to that border and see that I don't want to say conflict, but the situations that a lot of people are living in, how do you think their view of that has changed? Yeah, I mean, obviously the people that are coming down with us are usually more inclined to be, like the fact that they're going down, they're probably not going to be super anti-immigrant. But I think a lot of it is that they don't, they didn't quite understand what's occurring. To make it real brief, and I'm sure you might have discussed this some, before on other podcasts, but what's happened at the border is relatively new. Before people be at the border for a short time and then they would try to enter the U.S. Um, with a smuggler, um, with a coyote. But what started happening back in 2018, and you, you probably remember this, is that the Trump administration said, we're going to start separating children from their parents if they're coming to asylum. And that was obviously a a massive violation of human rights. The UN came out against it. It was one time, like the one of the few times that they relented and they went, they walked it back a little bit because it was so much backlash. But then they went to a policy of we're going to do family detentions. Mm -hmm. And so you probably remember like no children in cages. And there was, obviously a lot of issues with that as well. But then they went to a policy, which in some ways I would argue was even worse than that, but it didn't get the public pushback, which was saying, how about if we just say asylum seekers can't come into the U.S. and seek asylum at all, which is against our policies and against our our, uh, international human rights. Yeah. But they said that these migrants who at that time were mainly coming from Central America 
you're going to have to stay in Mexico for this permanent amount of time and until you're allowed to have your asylum case heard. Mm-hmm. And in theory, they made this, you know, this deal with the Mexican government that the Mexican government was going to take care of them. What, what it really led to was just like a massive homeless camp where people were in great danger of the cartels kidnapping them, of lack of food. And these two powerful nations just allowing these migrants to be in these horrific conditions. And then during COVID, it became even worse because yeah. more restrictions were put in. And now things have changed, but they haven't changed. I, I think some of the bigger policies are still in place. There's still thousands of migrants at the border. Um, and so we still have made these restrictions for seeking asylum. There are more loopholes to get in now. There's like a greater chance you can get in than it was under Trump. Um, so I think when we're having those discussions about immigration. It's important to like keep that nuance because sometimes you'll hear voices be like, nothing changes from administration to administration. Like they're all equally bad. And then other people are like, everything's better now under Joe Biden. And it's somewhere in between. Like there are things, there's still a huge human rights situation, but there at the same time, there are more opportunities for people to get asylum than there mm-hmm. were Trump. That's really good to hear that maybe the problem in and of itself isn't fixed per se, but it is easier for these people uh, who are living along the border to get the help that they need and deserve at the end of the day. And what's, do you have any uh, stories or maybe perception on their reaction, uh, the people who are living along the border, like sharing their stories with you all? How does that interaction usually go for them? Right now I'm working on a, a book with one lady that we worked with like really extensively um, at the initial camp. And she was able to get into the the U.S. right at the beginning of the Biden administration. So she's living in Boston now. But that story of just both the journey to the border, which is often extremely dangerous and a lot of trauma that's there. But then the situation of living at this camp, and in, in the case of of my friend, under this initial policy of Trump, they were there for like a year and a half. Wow. So at that time, it was just such a definitive block that she was there for a year and a half. But it was something where they were willing to send their children across with cartel members rather than have their children stay at the camp because they thought it'd be safer for them to cross with the cartel than it would for them to remain in the camp. And so there's a lot of heartbreaking stories like that, where the parents would be willing to be separated from their children because they're like, they might have more safety than staying in the camp where they could just be picked up anytime by the cartel. Mm-hmm. It's that's the kind of situation, obviously no parent would ever yeah, even consider making, but because of the desperation that's there, that's often what occurred. And so the way that I see it is that what we're doing with blocking asylum seekers is not only going against international human rights, it's also going against history in the United States, which for a long time was essentially, especially people from Europe. So there was a racial dynamic at play, right? But was essentially open borders. Mm. Um, where 
you know, if you came from Ellis Island or came to Ellis Island, you were pretty much just allowed to enter. Um, and actually the same was true at the Mexican American border. Um, so it wasn't just Europeans. Like you were allowed to like come and go across the border with very few restrictions. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's at the point where people are having to send their children across with cartel members because of these restrictions that are in play. And, uh, we just as a nation have to maybe grasp what this means as our policies. I think not just the listeners, but, you know, the podcast members who are editing this, I hope it really, you know, they think about not only the people that are going through the situations, but the policies that we have in place on a larger scale that keep people in situations like this along the border. Because oftentimes I think it's really easy to be like, oh, I feel so bad for these individual people. Let's, you know, go there and share their stories, which is amazing. It's great. It's what we should be doing. But also, how can we redact some of this policy that's going on on a much larger scale so these people aren't put in those situations at the end of the day? I think is something that we as students, as listeners of the podcast, just need to focus on as well. Circling around, we talked initially about the fact that our theme for the podcast this semester is all about the American South, a region that's really been stereotyped as being pretty homogenous. And on top of that, I would say most times people who aren't from the South would say that uh, Southerners are pretty unaccepting of people who differ from the standard, which I would like to think is untrue because I've grown up in the South for such a long time as an immigrant myself. So how do you believe that we can change the narrative concerning the stereotypical notion of the South and its stance on migrants, refugees, asylum seek and asylum seekers? Yeah, I think it's a it's a really good question because you know, going back to education, the South in a lot of ways is actually more integrated and more diverse than a lot of places in the North. You know, a place like New York or Boston, they might have very progressive policies. But if you look at their schools, they're often extremely segregated. And I I grew up in the Midwest. Like I had a it was a strange situation. Like I was born in the South. I grew up in the Midwest in Illinois. And then I came back to the South. So I've kind of seen both of those worlds. Um, But when I, I grew up in a smaller city in the Midwest, like two hours south of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very homogenous. Um, I would say just as much racism. Oftentimes it's not, you're not going to see like the Confederate flags. It's not going to be th- that kind of blatant, but a lot of stereotypes and racism. And so I think there's real movements for change in the South and we need to you know, lean into those not to get too off track, one one troubling trend I have seen a little bit is sometimes that some Northerners who really like a more, you know, I want to say racist, but very like restrictive view on society and very like conservative, they'll come to the South because they they like that. So it's almost like they're coming from Wisconsin or Michigan to South Carolina because they love the politics of South Carolina. Yeah. Which is, those are sometimes like the most (laughs) insufferable people because it's almost like they're making, they're bringing the South 
back into that idea instead of um, pushing us in a different direction. And so part of it, you know, especially for those in the podcast community is, you know, getting your friends out to vote, getting them involved. There's sometimes a narrative that um, millennials or uh, y'all are, I guess, Gen Z, right, Uh, are very politically active. But I think the reality is that there's a a small group that is. So like, obviously, those of y'all that are working in uh, the world of podcasting and um, this work are very deeply engaged. But there's also just a huge segment of the population that is not engaged at all. Like they've never voted, they never become engaged. Um, And so actually getting involved and this is why i tell teachers all the time that it's it's very easy to be like cynical or complain and that maybe that that first step is necessary but then how am i going to get involved to actually change things like if a teacher is complaining but they're not part of a group that's trying to make changes in the state it's like you're not actually being part of the solution yeah and so i think for those in the state of south carolina um who are not, don't like some of the direction that the state is going in some of these areas or has been is getting engaged, getting involved and realizing there are a lot of people out there that um, do have a lot more nuanced perspectives if you actually get to to talk with them and maybe they can tune down the the voices on cable news and actually you know, get to know other people in their community. This is your host, Isha, again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. It was such a pleasure to interview Dr. McCorkle and focus on refugee and new American education within our very own home state. If you like this episode and want to listen to more, please give our podcast a like and a rate. As always, follow our social media platforms to stay informed with all we do. You can find us at Seeking Refuge Podcast on Facebook and Refuge Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. If you would like to contact us through email, please send an email to seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com or our school email address, sosrpa at mailbox.sc.edu. Thank you so much.